Indigo's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trichauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. In his essay, Technologies as Forms of Life, Langdon Winner writes about technological somnambulism. The idea that people's ability to consider technology's effects is much slower than the pace of technological development and implementation. During the pandemic, governments and private companies have struggled against the coronavirus, trying to control it as much as possible. Sometimes, those attempts have come at the expense of citizens' personal freedoms, some researchers have argued. At the start of the pandemic, Bruno Oliveira Martins became interested in how different countries would use a state of emergency to respond to the virus and justify various responses, for better or worse. That idea became the project States of Emergency as Disruptive Pandemic Politics. As we approach one year since the WHO declared there was a pandemic, I talked to Bruno and Project Research Assistant Niveen Ahmad about what kind of tech developments and trends we've seen, and what can still be done to stay critical of new technologies while states continue to combat the coronavirus. Bruno is a senior researcher at PRIO, whose research interests lie at the intersection between technological developments, security practices, and societal change. He leads the States of Emergency Project. Niveen Ahmad graduated from the Peace and Conflict Studies Master's Program at the University of Oslo. Her research interests include public policy, security, and defense. She's specifically interested in the impact of emerging technologies and domains such as artificial intelligence, cyberspace, and drones on society. Welcome, Niveen and Bruno. Welcome back, Bruno. You are on the podcast for the second time. It's great to have you back. Um, we are still in home office uh, for the most part. A few people are, are in for various reasons, but the vast majority of us are home, and I think all three of us are home. Um, how are you guys doing? How are you, Niveen? Um, I'm doing well, I all things considered. Um, I think that it's sort of become my normal, which is a little scary. But um, yeah, I think that the home office has sort of shown me how you can still be proud of the work you do even if maybe you weren't as productive as you would be in in normal settings. But uh, I really do miss, uh, you know, the office and uh, taking regular steps, but uh, generally, <laughs> generally good. Oh, yeah, me too. Oh, my gosh. And I mean, it is kind of relevant to be talking about this because because of our topic today, which we'll get to. Um, but it is very much about how the everyday uh, has changed so drastically in uh, a little under a year. For us, it's been a little under a year. Um, what about you, Bruno? How are you doing? I'm generally fine in the big picture. I guess I'm fine. I'm starting to um, to feel the pressure of a cold Norwegian winter. Uh, but apart from that, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm also not a home office person, um, and so I look forward to kind of some sense of, um, you know, uh, everyday routines uh, when it comes to, to work, because I certainly uh, miss my colleagues and my coffee and uh, all these um, informal chats that's, that make a job something more than just, a, you know, a sequence of tasks that we have to do. Yeah, exactly. And also, I also miss the coffee. I miss the 
having coffee available at your fingertips and not having to make it yourself. Although my husband would dispute that because he does tend to make coffee most mornings. So sorry, Sigurd. Um, So we're going to be talking about uh, your project, Bruno, States of Emergency as Disruptive Pandemic Politics. And it's pretty rare that we would do a podcast episode that is really focused on one project. We like to obviously link up to, to research and projects, but I think that this is so relevant for this point in time. Um, and obviously it, it was a really rapid turnaround because this is about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and you you got the funding last year. So the project is from, it started in April and uh, I know now it might continue a little bit longer, but can you just tell us what is the kind of the the main, the core of the project, but also how did you get the idea in the midst of, of the pandemic? Yeah, so I think it became um, um, pretty obvious and pretty early um, that uh, this pandemic would create the ideal conditions for a sequence of states of emergency to be uh, declared. And from previous research on states of emergency, uh, for example, when it comes to, you know, in the field of more classical security uh, incidents like terrorist attacks, etc. We know that states of emergency have very uh, deep and very wide uh, societal implications that very often stretch beyond the specific issue that they were created for. Um, the fact that this also very early, uh, very clearly became a global dimension also brought uh, additional interest and, and additional uh, issues that we thought that would be um, very relevant. And in particular, because I think that this is happening in a moment where we are witnessing uh, several societal transformations uh, that you know pre-existed the pandemic. Um, that have to do with the growing importance of technology in our societies. So not only um, technologies are more and more seen as a solution um, to uh, particular uh, complex uh, societal issues, um, but also they are... uh, they stretch uh, into more and more different fields. So, uh, and the more technology becomes normal, normalized and the more it integrates different aspects of our daily lives, um, the more they accelerate or they kind of uh, help expanding the scope of these uh, states of emergency. So this is pretty much the idea that we had already back in uh, uh, March last year, And uh, 10 years on, I think that, uh, uh, unfortunately, the reality has clearly demonstrated that all these dynamics are clearly in place. (laughs) You said 10 years. I think you meant 10 months, but it does feel like 10 years. Okay, Um, you you got me there, but it's still (laughs) long. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I have to say, and maybe maybe you uh, will agree, maybe you won't, but I think it was quite visionary of you to already in uh, March see that kind of what was going to happen and in the sense that all of these different countries, different states are using this state of emergency in such different ways and that it would become such an interesting thing to study because, I mean, I don't know about the the rest of uh, the listeners, but I was pretty much like crying on my couch, um, eating chips and, you know, watching Netflix. And meanwhile, you were 
looking at broader broader societal implications of the pandemic. So um, I'm glad that that we can reap the benefits of this research, Bruno. <laughs> well, there is there is a lot of pre-existing research precisely on on the consequences of of states of emergency. So this is something that that, for example, um, states of emergency in connected well in connection with a broader discussion on on the state of exception. So there is mm. a lot of um, um, you know philosophical, political science, uh, constitutional. Uh, research uh, on that uh, for decades. Uh, there, there was certainly a, a growing interest in the aftermath of, of uh, the, the 9-11 attacks and, and how the so-called War on Terror and the Patriot Act in the US really created uh, a logic of that, that we are in a permanent uh, state of emergency that necessarily means that we are uh, in a state of exception. Um, and therefore, there's really uh, plenty of lessons learned from before that, uh, that uh, uh, come in very handy now. Yeah, and that, that is super interesting. I Speaking then about kind of the first research question that, that you list, which is how are different states using the state of emergency to fight the, the pandemic? I was thinking that we're three people from three totally different countries. And I know that just hearing from people back home in the U.S. that they're reacting. First of all, the state is obviously reacting very differently, but they're also reacting to this this state of emergency very differently than people in Norway are. And it's not at all kind of this um, cohesive uh, community spirit. I mean, I know that's a little bit simplistic uh, talking about Norway, but to a certain extent, I think that there is this idea that we all need to come together. And um, we have this word dugnad that people throw around a lot, which basically means, yeah, all working together for the greater good. Whereas in the U.S., it's much more disparate and of course, that could have something to do with the fact that the U.S. is massive and the states have different laws. But um, I was just wondering if the two of you could share a bit about your own kind of personal reflections. Um, Niveen, you're from Canada. How is it there? How do you think people are responding to this state of emergency in Canada? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that uh, a lot like the U.S., it's it's very different because you have... Um, the provincial governments have so much power over this. And so the federal government could be dealing with it one way, but it all really depends on also the provinces, right? So you see a huge difference between, um, for example, Ontario and British Columbia. Ontario is um, right now in a really bad place. They're in lockdown again. Um, their numbers are projected to be about 7,000 people a day. Um, by the end of the month. So it's really uh, different, you know, but it all kind of comes to how the provinces responded to it. But the federal government has been very, um, has been very responsive and was able to early on provide, you know, economic relief with, uh, with everybody who, who applied, basically, um, you know, there were funding for unemployment, but there was also funding for students that were planning on getting um, summer jobs that then weren't able to get them. So I think that that really helped just making sure that there was funding put into the system early on. But um, one really interesting point that was raised um, by um, a by, by the federal government was early on, and which I thought was very interesting, especially with regards to this project, was how you had a, the government really come out and say, 
okay, this is a collective issue. We all need to be following these, you know, social distancing rules and you need to be limiting um, contact and things like this. And they really said it out front that if you want the government out of your personal life, right, if you don't want this to get so bad that we actually have to mandate these lockdowns and mandate um, curfews and things like this, then, you know, we need to do it now while it's still voluntary. So I think that early on, they um, understood the risks associated with, you know, government expansion and uh, tried to leave that for, you know, last uh, resort. But, um, you know, but I think generally Canadians are dealing with this well. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, collective... uh, taking care of one each other and things like that. But uh, it really varies from province to province. Mm. And, uh, and I, yeah, I think it really shows that the pandemic can be extremely divisive or it can really bring people together. And I mean, back in the U S where I'm from, it's extremely divisive. Uh, There's no doubt about it. And it's very, very politicized as well. Um, Bruno, what about you? Uh, Well, I think that there is, um, uh, there is a, a legal constitutional dimension to the answer and also a cultural dimension. I think that um, uh, so in, in, in some countries, um, the, the capacity to, to, to declare states of emergency and the extent to which uh, these states of emergency can actually reach out um, uh, is much wider than in other states. So, kind of, there is this uh, this constitutional or legal dimension, uh, and we've seen that kind of that there are some measures that are adopted in some countries that would not be possible in other countries, for example. And 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 this happens in in all sorts of issues. Uh, but then there is also the cultural dimension in 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 which you have. Um, some countries where the state presence is uh, much stronger and also kind of uh, in in some ways kind of more welcomed. Other countries are more, you know, they have a more individualistic uh, 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 tradition, a kind of a, a, a typically a more distant relation to the state. And so all these different um, constitutional, legal, but also um, cultural traditions, they really uh, play out uh, in, the, in the particular issue of, of the states of emergency. Mm. Uh, so, Niveen, you last year wrote, in October, you wrote a blog post called uh, Public-Private Partnerships During COVID-19. Time to ask some questions. Uh, very provocative title. I like it. And I'm wondering, what are those questions that that you feel we need to ask? Because um, one of the main points of of states of emergency is also to look at the kind of technology that has been developed and uh, the acceleration of that development and um, what kind of maybe liberties are are able to be taken in in a state of emergency. So, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, Yeah, so I think that one of the trends that we're seeing um, being accelerated during the pandemic is this blurring of the lines between the public sphere and the private sphere. And um, one really great example of this is, you know, the fact that we're, you know, our our homes are becoming this, um, this, like the responsibility of of the public, where before it was the private, uh, with working from home and uh, e-learning, things like that. 
But um, with the blog post, what I was uh, really getting at was more specifically the COVID alert app and the um, the way that it was handled. You know, so we saw that there was this app coming coming out, and then there the question really became for the citizens and for governments: How do we roll this out? Is it uh, what sort of systems? Who do we trust more? It came down to trust, really. Because you have these centralized um, systems in which the government would have access to the data, and then you have systems like um, decentralized systems where you know Apple, for example, would uh, would sort of be more in charge of the development and um, the data. And of course, they say that it stays on your phones and things like that. But what we found is, um, especially in certain cases like in the UK, and <laughs> the way it was handled there is. Um, you really, you really have to be careful, uh, especially in times like this, because it's easy to rush to the private sector and kind of give them uh, these problems to solve um, where they have this expertise. And especially right now, there is a lack of, um, there can be a lack of expertise in the, in the public sphere with the government when it comes to technology, um, innovation, things like that. So the, you know the private uh, the pri- private actors are very important in this discussion but what's equally important especially in times where the consequences of these decisions can be you know detrimental is that we are still asking the same questions at the same level right so we're still we still have to expect the same amount of transparency for example even though we're in a state of emergency we still need to make sure that these decisions being made these technologies that are being developed are done so in a transparent way that are in line with the values of you know the values that we hold so you know inclusion being one of them um an example of this would be with the use of you know artificial intelligence in healthcare system. So when you're looking at the private sector, what one thing that they were able to bring is, you know, they have these amazing models, these predictive models and uh, diagnosis. So for example, Alibaba uh, produced this AI um, powered diagnosis system that they said had an accuracy rate of 96%, which sounds amazing, you know? And of course, with a doctor, basically, it would take them five to 15 minutes to determine whether or not someone has, you know, you know, has the symptoms and things like that, whereas this model is said to have um, to be able to make this distinction with 20 seconds. So private sector, really great innovation, right? But what you really have to then look into is what are what's the data that's being fed into the system? Or do we have, as, as you know, does the public have access to the algorithm? Is it, you know, a public knowledge? Um, what was really put into this black box to come up with these predictions? And this is, this really speaks to this other trend that we're seeing. And um, with before the pandemic about, uh, you know, racial bias, or um, just bias in general in technology. And so you have this acceleration where um, you have to now produce or not have to, but we are producing these technologies that have detrimental cost. But I don't know if we're really asking all the questions that we need to be asking. Um, a recent report uh, was released by the American Medical Informatics Association that sort of said um, these models, there's huge um, racial bias within these health uh, health. Uh, healthcare models that determine 
where we allocate resources, right? These are really important things. Like they allocate where we have ventilators, where how many ICU beds do we have? Who do we give them to? Um, and so having this public-private divide can at times, and what I was trying to get at is what we need to be asking whether or not having the, the private sector come in, um, whether or not they're asking the same questions that we would expect from public actors. And that, uh, you know, I believe we really need to demand those questions to be asked and um, even in these times and especially in these times. Yeah, mm. if, I, if I may uh, add something here, I think that um, uh, the, this this issue of uh, uh, time to put some questions questions is really important because um, this the a turn to techno solutionism and and to algorithm based governance is a political decision. Okay, we cannot look at these issues from you know a technocratic you know technology neutral perspective. No, these issues are embedded in politics politics is embedded in all the stages of technology design and then the way that technology is actually deployed in society uh, because it's one thing that is really important for us is really to emphasize this idea that uh, a digitalized world a tech-based world is clearly something that deepens pre-existing inequalities and Naveen has mentioned already kind of the the quality and the and the, and the nature of the data that is fed into the systems and there's a, a, a you know a very long tradition from from uh, research in medicine for example that really uh, has excluded you know variables such as uh, gender such as race etc into uh, the 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 process of developing new knowledge and the more we rely upon technology the more critical we need to be about the knowledge and the da- and the data that feeds into these processes so this is this is the first thing that i wanted to to say the second one is precisely related with the politics of these technologies is that uh, this uh, um, increasing reliance on technology, it's something that really impacts the quality of democracy. So this is a, an argument that, that we make in the project and in our publications that we really want, want to make further. And this happens in, in, in several ways. The first one is that has some uh, uh, authors have, have uh, showed very clearly technology enables and constrains human behavior in a way similar to the law. Okay, but whereas citizens are really directly or indirectly involved in the process of law creation, namely by electing lawmakers, etc., the citizens are widely absent from the tech-based processes. And this, you know, this has many implications. Uh, this has many causes. One of them is really the widening epistemic gap between, you know, a lay person, a normal citizen and the specialization and, and the expertise that it's necessary to really understand these technologies in all their implications. And also because typically the positive aspects of technology are embraced acritically, whereas the, neg- the negative implications are often portrayed you know, as accident or unforeseen or unintended. And this is really something that 
that has uh, uh, very serious implications on on the accountability of technology uh, technological developers, um, but also the way that that the public accepts or rejects uh, technology in, in society. Uh, terrifying stuff, Bruno. <laughs> so I know we've already talked about what the kind of broad trends have, have been. And uh, thank you, Naveen, for those really interesting examples. And so now that we're, we're kind of reaching the, the end of our time together, I just wanted to ask both of you, what effects do you think that the pandemic will have on, well, on these technology trends in general, but specifically on our willingness to, to be surveyed or to give away our data um, to be tracked, whether that's by our governments or or private uh, companies. Naveen, maybe you want to go first. Um, yeah, so I think that uh, this also kind of uh, goes in line with the, one of the trends that we're seeing um, accelerated. And one of the things is when it comes to surveillance, right, it's it's on a spectrum. So we have we have uh, willing a participation where you know we willingly give um, our information over to either you know governments or <laughs> or private companies but the the way it, but then it, it moves right then it moves of whether or not we understand what we're doing and then that could sort of speak to how at the beginning of Facebook how much did we really know we were giving over to to these social media actors and then it moves to where um it's just it's it's straight out. We we had no idea this was there was a lie involved, and uh, what we're seeing with surveillance is and one of the issues that was really raised was the um, tracking apps, right? The 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 COVID tracking apps, and um, we sort of see this uh, function creep. And so what basically function creep is it's this gradual widening of the use of technology or systems beyond what they were originally intended for, right? So um, we're seeing that right now, I believe, with the COVID tracing app in a place like Singapore, right? So initially, it was created to um, help with the pandemic, you know, um, all good, right? And there was this promise uh, that uh, in the privacy settings and things like that, that it would only be used for this purpose. But now we see that the um, data and the tra tracing app is sort of a tool that has been given to the police force. And this is where, you know, you start really um, the the um, the surveillance issue really comes up again. Right. Because there was a lie involved in this case. And a lot of people signed up um, because they thought that the data would only be used for health reasons and during this pandemic. But we see that that's not the case in Singapore. But I think more generally, we're seeing that uh, there is a lower threshold of acceptance for surveillance technologies. So we see that with drones being used in Italy, for example, there's this alleviation of maybe regulatory um, systems when it comes to governments and uh, um, surveillance technologies, but even on the individual level, right? Even on in our daily lives, I think that we are very much, um, you know, we see the pandemic as this collective problem and we all want to do our part. But that's why it's important that, you know, the political leaders in charge and these political actors understand that uh, trust is extremely important and so is transparency. And so if they want people to sign on to these apps and, um, and uh, give the, these give this information. They have to set a good precedent because, as uh, much as we don't want to hear it, we will 
probably face similar things in the future. And so it's important to set these precedents of, um, you know, governing these governing data in a well um, intentioned way. Absolutely. Bruno, what are your closing thoughts on uh, what are we going to see in the future? I think that I would like to emphasize um, this idea of the inequalities and how uh, often the, 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 the public policy decisions that are made, they encapsulate a standard understanding of what a human being is. So this is an argument that have, that has been made by, by Stefania Milan at the University of Amsterdam that really shows that uh, there is a kind of a standard understanding of what a human is, you know, and, and, and the decisions are made based on that standard. And then issues like, you know, the difference in income, for example, issues uh, of age, issues of gender, they are very much absent in our considerations of, you know, when we make decisions about uh, how to deal with this. And we see, for example, in the case of the transition to e-learning uh, and e-teaching, not all the students have the same uh, resources, uh, studying environment at home, etc. Not all the teachers and all the lecturers have the same technological uh, knowledge, not all of them have the same uh, conditions at home. And still the decisions are made taking, you know, this very uh, standard understanding uh, of what a person is without really considering that uh, we are all different and all these things really need to come to the mix. And I think that um, uh, Part of, of the message that we want to, to bring is precisely to avoid that we, you know, uh, sleepwalk into our technological future futures, as uh, uh, Weiner has said, uh, you know, many decades ago. Uh, and precisely, you know, we, I think that we will realize that we will find ourselves in a new normal, you know, as the general perception of the emergency really uh, slowly vanishes. And we will observe the digital footprint that it leaves uh, in our societies. So as Naveen asked and, and, and you know, really uh, asked for in her blog, it's really time to continue to ask the difficult questions because uh, otherwise uh, we will regret it. Definitely. Thank you both so much for talking with me and I'm really looking forward to seeing more from the project. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trick Hauger. Music by Martin Nello.